Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 Podcast. I am particularly excited today because this is the first live recording of the show. Today, I have Steve Clare, aka The Millennial Broker. Steve is not only known for the impact he's made in real estate, but in wellness and in hospitality. Beyond that, he's got an incredible podcast, The Stealth Starter Show. Steve, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. My man. <sighs> Steve and I met a couple weeks ago at a fundraising event for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. We literally didn't step away from each other for the entire event. We were talking the entire time. No, I was, uh, I met you and I was just very, I was very engaged. And I like to when, I like with everybody, but more so when I'm actually interested in what someone is saying, I try and put blockers on and not really like pay attention to anything other than what is coming out of this person's mouth. Yeah, and I, I noticed that about you, and I also noticed that it was 100% authentic. You were present. You weren't at all, you know, looking around, trying to see what else was going on. I know you were there with a friend that, that brought you there. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Nick. Oh, we're Nick. Okay. Yeah, you were there. With, yeah, that's right. You were there with Nick, uh, and not once did you kind of like, you know, stray off and, and you were completely present with me. Um, and beyond that, you know, we've been talking ever since and we've aligned on so many different items around what it is that we're trying to pursue presently. But more so, we also connected on the fact that we both have had ups and downs in our past. And you got to listening to Mile 40. You picked up a copy of Break Barriers. Um, and picked up and finished a copy of Break Barriers. That's right. He picked up, finished, and he sent me a couple screenshots of some grammatical errors that we had to get sorted out. Uh, but that's the kind of guy he is. He just wants the people in his circle to improve. Uh, and that was one thing I noted right away. Um, and so you know the premise of this show. Let's dive right in. And, and why don't you give us a little background here as to um, who you are um, beyond your bio and give us a little bit of an update regards to where you grew up. Sure. Um, sticking with the theme of the show, um, I'll give you a little uh, chronological breakdown of my life from out the womb till present day. Uh, grew up in Little Night, Queens. Um, in, grew up in Little Night, Queens. My parents got divorced when I was one. Father was completely out of my life. Grew up single mother with my brother who was four years older than me. When I was six, my mother was diagnosed with sarcoma. So she had cancer from when I was six till about seven, uh, single mother, and she got chemo, she fought it, she beat it. Um, when I was about 10 years later, it came back, but let's rewind before that. Uh, growing up in a house with a single mother, I had my brother in the house who uh, was somewhat uh, mentally abusive, a little physically abusive. And the only reason I bring that up on the show is because we're talking about 
you know, hardships and breaking barriers and what that did to me um, kind of forced me to adapt as I was growing up. Just one example, I remember back when I was in eighth grade, um, I had my closest homies that I used to hang out with, go to school with, hang out school, hang out after school. We were after school at my house, picking up my camcorder to go go around town shooting videos. And my brother was home. He was a senior in high school and a friend of mine was making noise in the hallway and he went and he grabbed my friend and he started banging him against the wall and he banged him against the wall so hard he had a welt about this big, he had to go to the hospital. And from that day on, my closest friends went from being my closest friends to my biggest enemies. Mm. And I spent the next year, two, three years, however long, uh, more so we'll just say that rest of that eighth, eighth grade year was these, this group of guys just trying to start shit with me almost yeah. every day. And my brother, he, you know, that was a moment in his life that he just continued on, didn't even think about it. But the way that that affected me was tremendous. What was the age difference? Four years. Got it. So when I was then a freshman in high school, he was a freshman in college. So the following year, he went off to a school in URI. Got it. So this, at, during this entire time, um, went from high school, well, grew up, went from Little Neck to Roslyn. My mom remarried when I was, what, 2001. So March 4th, 2001, my mom remarried. Rewind to 1997, four years prior, uh, my grandfather died. And my mother started going to a bereavement group. She, got, she started going to bereavement with Jules Katz. Jules was a friend of my grandfather's whose wife had just passed. Mm -hmm. From going to bereavement together, they fell in love. And eventually they got married on, like I said, March 4th, 2001. Fast forward about 16 months later, summer 2002, I get a call while I'm at sleepaway camp from my mom that the cancer came back. And she's going to have to start fighting it. So did she move to Roslyn after she got back together with Jules? Right. So uh, a few months before they got married, yep. they, we, knew, we knew they were going to get married and that once they got married, we were going to move to Roslyn. So I think literally they got married on March 4th, like that night, slept in Roslyn and never again slept in Little Neck. So just so the audience knows, can you give a little bit of an idea, right? The demographics between Little Neck and Roslyn oh, are absolutely. different. So Little Neck, where I grew up till I was 15, half my school was busted. in. Uh, in a classroom of 30 kids, you probably had uh, 12 white, 12 Asian, and then black and Spanish, and so on. Going to Roslyn, it was predominantly white Jewish. So going from one going from one side of the tracks to the other. And it was very cool doing that in high school, seeing how two different sides live. Yeah. And I mean, beyond the demographics too, Roslyn's known to be a very wealthy town, right? Yeah, it's funny though. So like people I grew up with, a lot of people either stay around after high school or they go to a lot of people are going to SUNYs and Whereas in Roslyn, it's like, I think out of my graduating class of 200, there was like 15 that went to Michigan, another 12 Cornell, and they're going to a lot more prestigious schools. And like, I remember every week 
there would be a different Ivy League or a, a big school coming in to talk to the students trying to recruit. Got it. Got it. All right. I'll let you pick up from there. So we moved to Roslyn. Um, 16 months later, my mother has the cancer, comes back. Uh, that was going to the beginning of my junior year of high school. Throughout the entirety of my junior year of high school, my mother was in and out of the hospital. So we had a hospital bed in the living room in our house, and she would be home for, let's say, two weeks, and then in the hospital for a month. Home for a month, hospital for two months. Back and forth, back and forth for literally the entire school year. Going through chemo, same thing as 10 years prior, lost her hair, was frail, weak. And at the time, it's me living in a house with my 71, 72-year-old stepfather. Hmm. Um, the summer going into my senior year of high school, I get a call while I was out in LA. I did a summer program. Uh, looking back, maybe I shouldn't have gone and done the summer program, but my mom wanted me to not miss out on anything. Yeah. And not for nothing, it was a quick flight away if anything were to go down. Uh, I get a call from my aunt that the doctor said it might be time, get home. Hmm. Flew back that night. The next day I saw my mother and she did, I won't call it a 180, but we'll call it like a 90. Hmm. And the doctor said that once I got back, her spirits got lifted exponentially. And he she went from a couple days to she could go much longer. Yeah. So this was July 2003. August 2003, I came back from L.A. And a month later, on September 15, 2003, almost 20 years ago, my mom passed. When, when it was that period where she was getting treatment, inside the house, outside the house. Can you talk us through a little bit of the roles that you played, your stepfather played? I don't know if your brother was around or if he was up at school at that point with regards to just caretaking at that point. So my stepfather was with her 24-7. It was 21 years ago, so I don't remember everything, but I know that he was always there for her. If she was, he was pushing her around in a wheelchair, he was holding her air tank, and just making sure that it was it was okay and making sure that there was another air tank in case this one had an issue. I personally probably could have done better. Uh, at 16 years old at the time, 16, 17, 17 years old, I don't, I didn't really understand the, the magnitude of what was going on. And maybe it was because she'd beaten it before that mentally I thought that it was just she's sick and she's gonna, she's gonna fight it and she's gonna beat it. But I, I don't think I could have. I don't think I could have done more. Yeah. But at that age, you know, you don't, you can't really understand everything. And you know, us talking earlier today about just at that age, the level of maturity. Yeah. You're not mature enough, and you're able to look back when you're older and say, "Wow, maybe I should have done this. I could have done that. Yeah. I could have been around more. Yeah. I could have been more helpful with my stepfather or with my aunts who." always helped. I mean, my mom was the middle of, she had an older sister, an older brother, and a younger sister. Got it. And her family was everything. My aunts were all also always there for her, always helping to take care of her in the hospital. And I don't remember the level of 
uh, responsibility between my aunts and my stepfather, yeah. but I know that all of them were always there for her. Did it ever dawn on you that, you know, you might go from having, you know, the one parent who stuck around with you to having no parent? Never thought about it until it happened. And then my mom passed and my 72-year-old stepfather wanted me out of the house. So I'm two weeks into my senior year of high school and my stepfather is saying he wants me to move out. And I'm just like, there's no way this is happening. My family is bugging out. Yeah. My mom just passed. There's a lot more things going on. And they, they actually hated him for this. And maybe a couple other things, but this was something that they really hated. But I, I understood it. What I didn't mention was when they started the bereavement group in 1997, his wife had died. I don't know how old she was, but he was in his late 60s. She was probably in her 60s. That's still young to die, but yeah. she was older. A few years before that, his daughter died. So this guy lost his daughter. He lost his wife. And now he just lost his second wife. Hmm. I felt for him. And I understood why the hell would he want to live in a house with a 17-year-old me, yeah. a senior in high school. But he agreed to stick it through. Um, fast forward to August 2004. Yeah. Go to school in Arizona. Okay. Great school year. Uh, that was that was the last time I ever spoke to Jules when I left. Fast forward to 10 months later, I get back from Arizona, and it's May 2005. And uh, my friend Amanda, who lived a town over, who I grew up with in camp, hit me up and asked me if I'll go to prom with her. So I'm like, yeah, sure. It's awesome. Jericho prom, going to be a good time. We go to the pre-prom. And for anyone who knows Old Westbury, very grandiose houses, a yep. lot of space. We go to this big pre-prom with probably about, I don't know, 500 plus people. And my date's mother calls me over. Steve, Steve, come here. Calls me over. Steve and Claire, I want you to meet Patty Claire. You two are the only Claire's that I've, that I've ever known. Now at this time, I've only known one Claire in my entire life. Yeah. My brother. Yeah. So she looks at me, she's like, Claire, where, where's your name come from? I, who's your father? And I've never met my father. My parents got divorced when I was one. Yeah. But I know a little bit about him at this point. I'm 19. Yeah. So I'm like, Franklin. She's like, Franklin? Sandy's brother? My dad was an identical twin. And Sandy was his twin brother. I'm like, yeah. She goes, that's my first cousin. Oh, my God. So I'm at this Jericho pre-prom, yeah. and I'm meeting the first Claire I've ever met in my life. <laughs> we talk for a few minutes, and they, st they start loading the buses. I leave. I go to prom. I don't think anything of it, and two months later, I finally hit up Amanda on AIM, okay. and I get Patty's number. I don't call her. Two and a half months go by. It's early November, and I'm at school in Arizona, and a friend of mine... I'm at lunch with a friend of mine and I tell her this story. She's like, wait a second, you you have Patty's number and you haven't you haven't called her? Like, no. She's like, go get her. No, I had it like written down. Yeah. Go back to my apartment. I call Patty, she picks up, boom, doesn't have my dad's number, but she has my uncle Alan's number, yeah. who's my dad's older brother. Okay. I call Alan, and this is 2005. I call his house. I get the machine. So mind you, his box, his yeah. his answering machine at home in Connecticut gets a voicemail from 
hey, Uncle Alan, uh, it's your your nephew, Stephen Joseph Clare, uh, Franklin's son. I got your number from Patty. Uh, give me a call back when you get the message. 516-322-7839. Talk soon. Imagine him coming home, sees the, the box beeping, beep, and that is what comes out. Calls me. I'm on the phone with him for 25 minutes, giving me... I'm not even saying like a 20-year rundown of the Claire side of my family. Sure. Like a 200-year rundown. He's okay. a historian who has a book this thick of a family tree. He's got pictures of like my great-great-great-great-grandfather, which is nuts. So he gives me my dad's number. So I'm 19 years old. This is November 2005. And I'm about to call my father for the first time in my life. Wow. I go up to my room. Lock the door behind myself, and I pick up the phone and I dial. Hello, uh, Franklin. Yeah, who's this? It's uh, it's Stephen, Stephen Joseph, uh, your son. What? Yeah. What? How'd you get my number? I I, I met Patty, and she gave me Alan's number, and then he gave me your number. Oh my God. I don't recall the rest of the conversation. I kind of blacked out, but we spoke. I told him about what I was up to. This was about a week before my brother was about to run the New York City Marathon, updated him on that. And we made plans that when I come back in three weeks for Thanksgiving, that we would meet. So fast forward three weeks later, come back to New York. And at the time, my father was working for a cab company doing dispatch. Okay. So back in the day, there was no Ubers. Yep. You call, you call a cab, and he would, you know. Yep, he would tell him where to go. Yep. So one night, maybe I got back on a Wednesday, Thursday night. I'm out in the city with my friends, and I take a couple shots to get the nerves out. Yep. And I take my buddy Jesse, and we go up, and I meet my father for the first time in my life, November 2005, when I'm 19 years old. We met there. I didn't see him until late December when after I got back for December break to New York. Well, we went, got a meal, went out again with my brother. And at this time, he put me in contact with my half, my half brother, who's my eldest brother, Brian. Mm. And Brian now is one of the closest people in my life. He's one of my, he's more than a brother. More than a brother, more than a friend. You know, <laughs> he's okay. very close. He's very close. And Brian has siblings on his side, Scott, Robin, and Lee, who I'm also very close with. Lee is also like more than a brother to me now. Mm. And it's fantastic. So, met my father. We hung out now a couple times. I go back to school. Fast forward to May 2006. I come back from Arizona and I see my father. And we make plans that in three weeks from now, we're going to spend our first Father's Day together. We're going to go to Shea Stadium. Hmm. I don't hear from him for three weeks. On Father's Day 2006, I get a call at noon, almost on the dot, from him. Hey, where do you want to meet at Shea? And at that point, I hadn't heard. I didn't get a call, a text. I hadn't heard from him since I got back. Yeah. And I was just like, you know what? I'm good. Have a good life. Met my father in... November, cut him out in June. 
I didn't see him again until February 2012 when it kind of kind of hit me like a couple weeks before where like if he would have died I would have felt terrible not having any closure not seeing him so now that Brian was in my life we had made it a, a tradition that every year we'd go out to dinner for my birthday yeah so like before we go out to dinner let's go see him at this point the reason why he was now at my dad was at, a, at an assisted living home out in Smithtown. Okay. And I was like, let's go see him at the assisted living home. If he if he were to die, I'd, I'd feel terrible not having some closure. So he takes me out there. Within two minutes, I was like, let's get out of here. I saw him, said hi, didn't really need more than two minutes, if that. And we left. And um, the last time I saw him after that was when he was on his deathbed on life support after he had his final stroke back in 2017 or 18 he made it to wow yeah and that was six years ago so yeah so he made it pretty far after having such a terrible bill of health um at that point well we could rewind a little bit before that while this is all going on i graduate college and i come back and my 20s were a bit of like a who gives a fuck type of living. I was a real estate agent. I graduated, similar as you, I graduated December 2008. Nobody was hiring. Got into real estate. And that summer I got into real estate, 2009, I broke up with my girlfriend whose apartment I, would I, would, I had been living in. And I started living on, living on my friend's couch. My, buddy Dave who's my best friend some 10 years old and Dave at the time when we were god we were what 22 23 at the time Dave was already running marketing for uh, a pickup artist company PUA training hmm. and he brought them from being worth like half a million to like five ten million and every night I'm sleeping on his couch and I'm watching him copywriting every night and his apartment, even at that age, looked like a library for someone with ADHD. Yeah. Books on books on books, all of them. You open them up, any random spaces, just highlighters, highlighters. And he, was, he would always try and get me to read. But I didn't give a shit. I had no parental guidance at the time other than Dave trying to get me to read to self-educate and better myself. I had no one else that was really pushing me to do anything better. If anything, I had friends who were getting into their nine to fives and then at five o'clock on the dot, let's go to the bar. Was there ever any sort of male influence in your life, right? Like that really impacted you before the age of 20 in a positive way? <sighs> only in business. The only like there, so you know, rich dad, poor dad. Yes. So I grew up with two uncles. Okay. Uncle Sam and Uncle Harry. Rich dad, poor dad. Uncle Harry will be on a trip with his wife on vacation in the south of France. And if his client calls, he's taking that call and he'll be on a two hour call because he always is doing right by his client. Yeah. And everything he did in business was always playing chess. And he always just moved things forward and was always there for everybody. And in business, he was always super kind. Sam, on the other hand, was conniving. Sam would relish over making an extra 20 bucks off a client. Hmm. So he had he had inherited his family's office supplies and stationary business. And let's say a client 
ordered uh, to- uh, 12 rolls of toilet paper, Charmin two-ply. He would go to Costco and get Costco brand one-ply, and he'd boast about making an extra $28 from giving them the shittier toilet paper. Yeah. Rich dad, poor dad, but shitty uncle, smart uncle. And that other uh, that was really the only male influence other than my life, other than now in my 20s, Dave, who was my not just my best friend, but now my mentor and my coach for the next 10, 15 years, trying to implement structure on education. I want to dig into this a little bit more because obviously I know where you are today and I know where this story goes. But one of the things that you know, even goes back to the first question I asked you about the demographics between Roslyn and Little Neck, and then I'm trying to uncover here was your relationship around money and around wealth um, and around building wealth at a young age um, and really how you got by uh, after your mom passed going to college? uh, Was money top of mind? Was it not top of mind? Um, Was it more around survival? Even your brother and 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 yourself and like how you guys uh, survive together during the darker moments. Can you dive into that a little bit? So money was ne- money was always important. Like I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather would always say, you know, "Give give Corey some change and he'll catch it like this. Give Stephen some change and he'll catch it like this." Yeah. Like I'll I'll hold on to it. And I remember back when I was like ten years old. I would bring candy to after-school daycare, and I would sell it, whether it was for 50 cents or a dollar, and have a big grocery bag of candy. Sleepaway camp, I, had a, I bought a George Foreman grill, and at 12, 13, 14 years old, I'm going to the kitchen, and I'm getting bread, cheese, and I had a trunk full of sodas. And at night, when everyone's back in their cabin, I would sell a grilled cheese and a soda for like 10 bucks. So. These were different entrepreneurial things. I got my first job, like official, legally able to work type job. Uh, maybe I was 15 or 16. I worked at a kiosk, a cell phone accessory kiosk in the mall. But I always, like, but I, I never, like, had so much money. Like, I didn't come from money. Yep. So it's not like, and I didn't have the, like, the guidance of, how to save money or yeah. how to do anything with money. Yep. So it just like came and went. But you were always surrounded by a lot of money. Like did that ever get in your head around the fact that you were surrounded by money and stability? Like it wasn't yours. It wasn't your money or your stability, but you saw it and you know you had insight into it. Did you ever worry about how you were going to bridge the gap? Um, and I, and I want to make sure I'm clear about this. I know you're not a money chaser and I know that that's not, you know, your goal. But what I am trying to get at here is at some point you have to go from a lot of chaos to stability. Um, And that's a huge gap. And sometimes people look at money and they equate it with stability. And I want to try to get into your head uh, during these developmental years and wonder, was there ever a period where you were in your own head thinking to yourself, like, I'm not going to make it past these next six months, a year. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm ever going to achieve the kind of stability some of these people around me have. So throughout my, tw- throughout my early 20s working in real estate, I was probably making anywhere from $25,000 to $40,000 a year. And if there was ever a time when I 
got down to $35 or less on my bank account. A couple times, maybe even more than a couple times, my aunt, my aunt Tara was a amazing lifeline. Hmm. Like she is, she's a heart of gold. And she would, you know, to, she, she would send me 500 bucks. Hmm. Uh, she would put 500 bucks in my account just to like help me get by. Yeah. And working in real estate, it's not, because I was since 2009. Yep. Uh, you do a you do a deal, and at that time I was pre- predominantly rentals. You do a deal, and you have a three thousand dollar injection. Yeah. And then you know you party, and you don't pay attention too much, and it windows down. But being re- trying to be responsible and knowing that in the summer you really need to eat what you kill and make a lot to weather the storm throughout yeah. the winter. Because yeah. real estate in New York, uh, it's kind of like the weather as it gets hotter out. The market gets hotter, bless you. Yeah, thank you. As it gets hotter, and then as it gets colder, the market gets colder. Yeah. So to answer your question, I never worried about money mm. because I knew that money comes and goes. I'm more about personal touch. And while it's become a lot more prevalent nowadays, social currency was always something that was important to me. Yeah. And that uh, social currency was always something that was that I just surrounded myself with. Being able to have friends, uh, friends, colleagues, family members that I'm trying to think how I'm trying to say this, having friends where I could pretty much lean on, not in like a take advantage away, but just knowing that I had friends that were there for me, that I could be there for them. And for example, if I needed a place to stay. Or let's say we were going to Miami or Vegas, knowing that if I couldn't cover X, Y, and Z, that they would take care of this. Yeah. But then also when we're going out, me being able to, me being able to cover, uh, let's say, a table and getting us a bottle yeah. because I have this connection. Yeah. And part of rich dad, poor dad, good uncle, bad uncle, my uncle Harry taught me uh, in, uh, indirectly the value of bartering yep. at a very young age. He grew his business on the barter business. Yeah. So if we're going out and I'm getting us two bottles comped because yeah. of who I am and what I'm able to do, friends being able to compensate in other ways. Yeah. And that was also something I, I also did a fair amount of promoting and I made money here and there throughout my early 20s promoting as well. Got it. Hey all, it's me, Bishoy. As a marathon runner and endurance athlete, I've come to understand the importance of properly fueling your body for preparation and recovery. Every day, you get a shot at success. How you start your day typically paints a picture of what the rest of the day will look like. Start your day with a super convenient, healthy, and delicious nutritional win. Meal one by Creatures of Habit. Overnight oatmeal packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, chia, flax, and pumpkin seeds. Vitamin D3, omega-3s, a probiotic, and digestive enzymes made in under one minute. Stop wasting time or worrying about what to eat as your first meal of the day. Start with meal one. Visit creaturesofhabit.com, creatures spelled with a K, and use code MILE40 for 15% off a one-time purchase or the first subscription order payment. One other question that I kind of wanted to ask you based on the fact that your mom passed away, your experience with your father, did you ever have 
trust issues around getting too close to people. In particular, when I think about your father, the idea of the fact that people can't be relied on, people might not stick around for a while. And then just the idea of death, that, that it's unpredictable and the perspective that death gives you in terms of what you've experienced with your mother, did it impact your ability to uh, lean into loyalty with other people at all? It didn't, not at all, because that's, that's not my DNA. My DNA is taking everybody for what they're worth and actually looking inside them. More so, a lot a lot more so recently, my mile 40 came almost a year ago today. Not yet. So throughout my 20s, as we were saying, Dave, who was my best friend, he tried to get me to self-educate. Finally, when I'm like maybe about 30 years old, he had me pick up uh, Executive Toughness by Jason Selk. Great book. And after I read it, I kind of felt taller. I was smarter. And I understood why he read so much. And he didn't, he, he was a genius. And then he gave me another book recommendation. Read this, here's why. Read this, here's why. One book turned into five, turned into 10, turned to 40, turned to 60. And I was self-educating and I was just smarter. And it's crazy that reading makes you smarter. <laughs> Right? That's right. It's crazy. So now I'm getting better. Uh, from 2017 up until uh, COVID, so for about three years, uh, I would go down. Dave had moved to Miami, and I would go down from November to March three or four times, and I'd spend anywhere from four days to ten days living in Dave's apartment. He had a three-bedroom by himself. And I would spend those spend that time every morning, get up, go get some Starbucks and just work. And he would do his work, I would do my work, and then we would powwow. And we'd go over what I'm working on. And we would go over what we're reading. And we'd watch YouTube videos and we'd educate. And I was getting better and better and smarter and smarter. And I would test things he was saying. And it either failed or it succeeded. And if it failed, it was a learn. So fast forward to last, uh, last August, August 1st, 2022, my son is born. That same week, I closed my biggest commercial deal. I closed my biggest residential deal. And then September 9th, 2002, Dave died. I remember that morning getting a call from my brother and just the sound of his voice it was it was muffled it was slow and he just said dave died hmm. and i i didn't hear how i didn't hear why i didn't hear anything but it just shook me to the fucking core the world just stopped like i had like the, the like the sun was just like beating and I don't mean like heat, I mean visually, the sun was beating and I just started sobbing. And for the next four or five months, there wasn't a day that I didn't bawl. My best friend had just died at 36 years old and it really, really opened my eyes to a lot. Hmm. I had just had my son, which we spoke about, yeah. changes your life. It kills me almost every day that Dave never got to hold my son. And from Dave leaving, it really made me 
want to just make myself lighter. And what I mean by that is getting things, more so getting people out of your life, out of my life, that don't need to be there. People talk about that all the time. Like, oh, in my 30s now, we were friends. No, but actually doing it. Like not having to worry about keeping in touch with somebody because you were friends, you were colleagues, but just cutting people off, not in a malicious way. But I'm a firm believer that you are the sum of who you hang out with the most and just cutting people out of your life that aren't in your future. I stopped drinking. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I'm focused on the most important things in life, my son, my wife, and work. I have my businesses and just working on making that 110% better every single day. And another thing we've spoken about is just how important it is for me for mentoring. And mentoring doesn't have to be someone who's younger than you, doesn't have to be someone who is under you, what I mean, younger under that you're, you're training, but even just like a friend. Like when I first listened to your podcast, I know, the val I know the value of giving you constructive criticism. And I didn't tell you like any issues I had with your, po I told you the positives and the negatives because if people don't tell, a lot of people are going to be cheerleaders in your life. Yeah. And people, especially nowadays, only want to be cheerleaders because they fear hurting someone's feelings. Yeah. Being real is so much more important than hurting someone's feelings. If you're real with somebody who hurt their feelings, they'll get over it but they'll be able to think about what you said to them and better themselves. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And there's a lot to unload there. First and foremost, your relationship with Dave. I mean, I think that when you look over the course of your life and everything that you had been through, I don't know if you were seeking out a Dave or he was like an angel that came into, into your life, essentially. But what I want to make sure the audience gets out of this is, you know, th those those people exist and they can impact you in ways that you never saw coming. And I bet 17, 18-year-old you after you lost your mother, you know, didn't think that you would experience another loss in your lifetime um, that would, would shake you in that way, especially given the fact that, you know, she was a single mother. Yeah, and losing my mother at 17 losing my single mother at 17, you don't have the, the mental capacity, the mental capacity to understand what exactly is going on. And you have so much more life to live, but losing your best friend at 36 years old, and not just my best friend, my best friend, my mentor, my sounding board, like any, literally any question that I had in business, in life, with Dave, a lot of it was business. So yeah. for me, as you know, like business, my businesses are a big part of my life. He wasn't, he just wasn't there anymore. And all the time I have questions on what, what should I do here? And he's guided me so much in the last, in the last 10 plus years yeah. that I could kind of have a conversation with him, even though he's not here, mm. but obviously it's not the same. Yeah. And when I have those conversations, definitely gets me choked up and it's okay. It's okay to be emotional. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's extremely difficult to, 
to go through that motion after losing someone who's had that big of an impact on your life. And a, a lot of people in, in different ways have had to deal with circumstances not as tragic as that. But what I want to ask you now is a year later, you know, having having grieved and, and continuing to process what happened, are you actively seeking, you're never going to replace him, but are you actively seeking someone else and, and, and trying to find, you know, you said it yourself, right? You are the average of the people you keep closest to you, right? And I, I bet after losing Dave, you've never been more intentional about making sure the people closest to you are the right people. But that doesn't make it any easier to find those people. And a lot of people say they want to find, uh, you know, I'll even use myself as an example. Uh, in a post-COVID world, I found myself in a, in a zone of a lot of my friends left New York and I was surrounded by a lot of high performers before that. Um, and then I got married and, you know, we have our daughter and of course my wife comes number one and, and my daughter's right up there too. But aside from that, I, I am looking to constantly surround myself with those people who are going to increase my value from an average perspective. And it, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, and I know that you're surrounding yourself with the right people based on um, what I've learned about you over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but can you give some insight into the next steps after, you know, Dave was not here in terms of making sure that circle was tight with the right people? It's a matter of who you talk to every day. And we'll just go right back to that. And text threads even fall into the hangout bucket at this point in your life. So if you have a, te a text thread with a bunch of guys, girls who aren't doing shit, yeah. remove yourself from that text thread. Yeah. And I'm going to answer the question because that's part of it. It's removing yourself from that and only talking to people who are doing shit. People, uh, my friends who I talk to, the only people I talk to almost as much as my wife, my buddy Charles, Max, and my brothers. Yeah. And like, yeah, like, I love Corey. Like, yeah, I resent Corey from the shit he did to me as a kid. But I still love him. And he's working hard at what he's doing. And I try and help him. And he tries and help, she tries to help me. And really just talking to friends who are like family, who are doing shit. And no one will ever replace Dave. Yeah. I never had someone, I didn't grow up with a male yeah. role model. And it's, I'll talk about this. I, I started going to therapy in, in May. Mm -hmm. For 20 years, my aunt tried to get me to go see a therapist. Mm -hmm. 20, 20 years, 20 years this September 15th, it will be since my mom passed. Never wanted to go see a therapist. I did right after it happened, but literally sat across from this woman and she would ask me a question. I'd answer it. While I was answering it, I would say, she's probably going to say this. <laughs> and she said that. And then I'd answer it. She's probably going to say this. And I left that day. I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. Going to see a therapist this year changed my life. Uh, yeah, changed my life. It really opened up my eyes into my past. It unlocked things that I might have blocked out. Or maybe if not blocked out, but the way that she connects the first 10 years to the next 10 years to the next 10 years. And really looking at that, I didn't have a father figure. I didn't have a male role model. But then I had Dave, yeah. who was my best friend since I'm 10 years old. 
And then for 15 plus years, he's trying to guide me into bettering myself and doing better in business, better in life. And he succeeds, starts succeeding. And then Dave dies. So now, and connecting the dots from not having a role model, having Dave as a role model, then losing the male role model, it sucks. Yeah. And I don't resent anybody who has had that in their life. Yeah. I don't look like, wait, they had that. That's, people are fortunate to have both parents alive. People are fortunate, some people have grandparents who are in their 90s. Yeah. And that's amazing. I don't, I don't resent anyone for it. I think that is fantastic. Yeah. And that's life. Yeah. And that's, that's just life. It's all love. You know, we, we've said it before on this podcast, and I'll continue to repeat it again. Um, and you don't hear it from me directly. You hear it from the guests, just the power of therapy. Um, oh, and yeah. you hear it from all sorts of stories and all sorts of backgrounds. And, you know, th there's no, there's no staging here. I don't tell my guests to come on and talk about their experiences with therapy, but they all do it. And, and that's just a testimony to it. And one other thing I want to point out around the, the thing that you said around leaving those text logs, leaving those group chats. I mean, look, I have nothing but respect for uh, the people that I've you know engaged with over the years. But one of the most freeing things that I did was, quite honestly, I left my college group chat. Um, I left it a little over a year ago. And, you know, there, there was no hate and there was no, you know, ill will. But I realized that, you know, I needed to free myself from the noise. Were they um, just talking about like nonsense and politics? And you're saying, like, why don't we talk about growing businesses? It was nonsense and there was nothing uplifting about yep. it. And it wasn't, you know, a group of people who were trying to make each other better. It was a lot of complaining and it wasn't ever solutioning. And, um, you know, immediately I, I knew that while I have nothing but respect and wish, you know, all these people nothing but the best, I'm not about that. I'm about a growth mindset. I'm about, you know, like, it, yeah, like if, if you don't like being stuck at home all day or, you know, if you're complaining about, you know, not making the money that you want to make or, you know, being single or whatever it may be that, you know, you're, you're personally kind of complaining about, you know, Put your mind to it and surround yourself with people who are going to push you to be the best version of yourself um, and to guide you uh, to get to where you want to go. And one of the other things that you pointed out was a failure is not a loss. It's a learning moment. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, I, I feel is really limiting to a lot of people around their mindset. It's not winning or losing. It's winning or learning. And, and that's really, you know, one of the things that kind of shaped my trajectory over the last couple of years when I employed some of the things that, that you had talked about. I want to make sure that we touch on some of your business ventures as we wrap things out here. You know, you've done a lot across different spaces here. You're known most prominently for what you've done in the real estate space, uh, but you've got a little bit of a wider portfolio than that. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Uh, August... 2017, I started Endoband. Uh, Endoband is a fitness lifestyle company, which has test. I've tested different avenues in the last six years with the business, but right now, predominantly, we private label bands. 
resistance bands for trainers, gyms, and organizations. So you work at Salesforce. So let's say Salesforce were to do custom bands because every big corporation has a corporate wellness initiative. Mm -hmm. We can take Salesforce whose colors are what, blue and white. white. So, but it's not just any blue. It's not just like a navy blue or a light yep. blue. There's a specific Pantone. And I was able to, many years ago, source the best quality rubber bands where my vendor can also make any color that I want. Mm. So whatever that Pantone color is of blue for Salesforce, we can make those with the Salesforce logo. And we've done that for many gyms, corporations with our own products. Back when I first started, I got our bands into every crunch gym around the country mm. We've outfitted bands for uh, Brandon Marshall's gym, House of Athlete. We did bands for them. And right now, predominantly, we are doing the private labeling. And we're going to start doing some more smaller special events with a couple trainers that I'm working with. That's one. Another avenue of what I do is the podcast, which also has an arm, which is the networking events. Yep. So the Self Starters Network is a series of networking events where we had the first one last month. The next one is October 26th. You better be there. I will be. I was just about to say, I'll be there. Yep. October 26th, just locked in the venue this week. And we're starting to plan the, the panels and the programming. And just when I start, once I get the venue and I start percolating all the ideas for the event, I got to start writing stuff down because I need to write my ideas down and see, all right, if we do all this, it'll be way too much of a mishmash and it won't make sense. Yeah. Or it will make sense, but it'll be too much. And I, I dumb it down as to like, uh, what's best for this event? What can we hold for the next one when we're even bigger and then even bigger? And let's not have this panelist. Let's wait till we're a little bigger so that these panelists can help it grow. And then I'm also working on building a restaurant in Williamsburg. Yes. Tell us more. So my partners, uh, do you know Rose's Pizza? Yes. So Rose's Pizza, that's my partners. Okay. Uh, we have a space on Kent and Grand okay. in Williamsburg. Uh, it is a 1,400 square foot downstairs. We have a pizzeria cafe, which is connected to a bar lounge. Yep. And then we have a 3,300 square foot roof deck. Right now, we have all approved plans from the DOB. Our architect built Avra, Catch, Catch Steak, Tau. You know those places? Yeah, oh, yeah a little bit. Yeah. Our GC just finished building Bad Roman. Okay. He built the Kith store on Lafayette. Yeah. So nonetheless, we got an A-team behind us. Yeah. And the name of the restaurant is Enza. Enza is my partner's mother's name. Got it. And it'll be Sicilian with... Alcohol and live alcohol and live music. I love on it. On a rooftop on the water in Williamsburg. I love it. What I love about just kind of hearing you talk about all this is I know there's no end game for you, right? Like it's just about being better tomorrow than you are today in every single one of these endeavors. You know, and, and I think that's been um just so on display based on your trajectory, most prominently in the real estate world, but you're, you're like still just scratching the surface. Personally, I'm just so proud to have you on the show. Um, I think that your story is extremely relatable. You know, just to kind of recap everything for the audience here, 
Steve grew up in a broken home. He was, was in a single mom home. He had a brother um, who had who really gave him a tough time growing up, and and things really just kind of weren't working out. Uh, his mother remarried and shortly passed away thereafter. That he had an encounter where he met his father for you know what six months it Something was, like and you know never spoke to him. Well, went to see him again. Yeah, you know as he was getting closer to his, to pretty much never spoke to him again. Got closer to him or got to see him again as he was, you know, on his deathbed. Um, and most recently, and the way that you capped it out, despite everything that you went through, your mile forty moment happened last year after you lost your best friend, the person who really became one of the strongest influences in your life, um, and you experienced the birth of your son a month before that. And and it just kind of speaks to the notion of how life could be, number one, extremely unpredictable, uh, but number two, extremely eye-opening around how quick change could happen within. It was, you know, after experiencing life and death in such a short period of time that you completely turn things around. And, you know, I just want to say thanks, man. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you uh, for being just a daily inspiration to me and, and everyone that you come across. And I have no doubt, you know, people are going to walk away from this episode inspired today. Dude, thanks for having me. My man. And uh, just some advice on how to keep the stress down. Just fucking breathe. Just breathe. Things could always be worse. Things could always be worse. You're not going to die tomorrow. You're not going to die in 10 years from now. When you look back on any of these bad times, it's just going to be a remember that time when. You're going to get through it. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family, and let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.